from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. Listen for the Word of God as it touches your hearts, your minds, and your souls. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God, and when Abathar was high priest and ate bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. And then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, for he was grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, conspired with the Herod Herodians against him, and how to destroy him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ah, the Sabbath. When I was growing up in Pennsylvania, I don't know if it was like this in Florida, but I do know it was like this in Pennsylvania. We had the Sunday blue laws. The blue laws, nothing was open. And as I told the kids, we could do nothing. We couldn't even play cards. If we were really lucky, Dad let us watch baseball on the TV. Nothing was open. Nothing was done. Even the gas stations were closed. Then one day, then one day an exemption was offered to the gas stations. Then to the food marts, then to the food stores. Then the entire law itself was struck down. Even the state-owned liquor stores would be open until 5 p.m. on Sundays. Churches up to that point, they were full. They were packed full. And all seemed right in the world on Sunday mornings. Young teenagers were filling youth groups and participating on all kinds of levels. Sunday activities, oh, oh, you had an activity, it was done at church. 
until the blue laws were repealed. I remember asking one of the stalwart youth that had always been there, oh, from the time she was this high, she always had been there, why she hadn't been to church on Sundays. Well, she was working. Working? Why? Well, she had to find a way to pay for gas and insurance for her car. I naively asked her, well, why do you need a car? And she answered, to drive to work. <laughs> for many folks, the Sabbath is on Sunday. For many, it's on Saturday. For me, my Sabbath is Monday or Tuesday. Sunday for me is a work day. But Monday or Tuesday, that is my Sabbath. It's the day that I prepare the sermon or go over the sermon, get it ready for Tim to look at, to proofread, the wordsmith. Actually, all the sermons are really is me with a thought Tim writes them. <laughs> I start the day in my office generally and I pray over the text. I try to listen for a sermon to come or to make those changes. This past Tuesday was a little different. Monday was a holiday, jam-packed worth of stuff. Tuesday was a little different. I was compacting a whole week's worth of work into Tuesday, because I took Wednesday and Thursday off. I compacted it. So I sat in my office. I looked at the sermon that wasn't existing. And I prayed. I listened. I took a deep breath. I listened. I prayed again. I went to the sanctuary to walk and pray. Too many people working in the sanctuary to do work. I went to the fellowship hall. It was being worked on. I went back to my office. I shut off the office lights, turned on my desk lamp. I prayed again. I got nothing. I pulled out every reference book I had and laid it out on my desk. I looked at the text. I studied it and heard what Christendom had to say. I heard what Augustine had to say. I looked at everything. Nothing. Panicking. And I was panicking. I started to compare different Bibles. I laid out all the Bibles. I had my computer up. I was looking at seven different Bibles. How did they interpret this text? I looked at the Greek. I even went back to Genesis and looked at Sabbath. I looked at recreation. I looked at Exodus. I looked at Deuteronomy. I even looked at the Samuel text that Jesus spoke about this morning about David. I looked at the Hebrew. I haven't looked at Hebrew in years. The priest asked, answered, David, I have no ordinary bread, only holy bread. Could that be? It's communion. Could that be it? Nope, nothing. Nothing. My door is shut. It's dark. My office, my desk lamp is there. I know Carol Verducci was in the office. All of a sudden I hear from my office door in the hallway, Pastor, in this dark, husky voice, <coughs> Carol had a cold. She said, you're dead to me. Oh, I replied, yes, yes, come in, come in. 
And then I peered through that little opening I had in the door, that, that crack, and I looked, and I realized it was not Carol Verducci, but someone from the street. Shocked, I invited the person to come and sit down while I walked out to find out how this person got in to the office that is shut down tight so that we don't get people walking in on us for protection. We were counting money. I was a little shaken up, as the folks in the office were, actually. When I got back to my office, it took about 10 seconds. I sat down and sat down where the, the person was. I sat down and said, what can I do for you? And that person looked at me and said, you are obviously more worried about how I got into the office than what my problem is. And that person stood up and walked out of my office and outside and got back into their car. Your pastor messed up. Your pastor messed up. I was so consumed with writing my sermon, I was so consumed with my Sabbath, with my praying, with my quiet time, with my time with God, I was so consumed that I forgot my mission, my ministry, my call to practice what I preach to put Christ into my vocation. So consumed was I that I forgot the words of action. As the person left the administration building, I was not feeling all that well. I had just missed an opportunity to minister to someone, to someone in need, whatever that need was. I will never know. I missed the opportunity. It will never appear again. My Sabbath got in the way of feeding the hungry or helping the poor, lifting up the disenfranchised. Suddenly, I saw the picture that Jesus was painting in this text. The leaders of the synagogue were so tied up, so tied up in the ritual of the Sabbath that they thought that it was illegal for Jesus to heal someone on the Sabbath, to do good. But it's perfectly legal for them and the Herodians to plot to destroy and kill Jesus immediately, still on the Sabbath. Jesus' double question that he asked is very clever. Clever indeed. It's impossible to answer because it was certainly lawful to save a life on the Sabbath. But to do good was much too general, much too general criterion for the legal scholars of the time. To do good was too general for scholars to agree with. From the standpoint of the leadership, that watched Jesus, if this man had had a withered hand for this long, one more day, what would it matter? Especially when it meant breaking one of God's commandments. 
The law of the synagogue had overruled the law of God. And instead of the story ending in an amazing, oh, what an amazing story, in a stead of amazement and glorification, it ends up with a plot to kill and destroy Jesus. So this story closes with a reminder of the cross. So the difficult truth of the cross is that we would rather kill Jesus than be transformed by his love. The leadership and our resistance is great, but Jesus has come to reconfigure our relationship with God. It's one of those continuing mysterious realities of life in the church, a reality that is exposed, I think, in this text. We prefer a dormant God we prefer a quiet God. We prefer one that doesn't nudge us too much, leaves us sit nice and quietly, comfortably, doesn't move us along, so we can sit with our rituals and rites instead of the active category-busting God who is ever-present in our lives, one that pops up in the office unexpectedly mysteriously and disrupts the train of thought for that moment. When God gets too close to us, challenging us as Jesus challenged the religious order of his day, you see, we begin to construct our crosses and prepare a place on that cross for God too. What field is Jesus walking through in our lives plucking ears of corn from our sacred rituals? Who is Jesus healing that we sh believe should remain sick? Perhaps if we look more closely, we will find that Jesus is healing us, changing us, moving us, threatening us to take us out of our normality. We are all offered up this question, you and I, as to what the essential categories of our lives are that Jesus does threaten. What have we made divine in our lives that should remain mortal and finite? The question that I asked of the young lady from the youth group, why do you need a car, still remains open today, just as the question that God asked of me. Pastor, Jesus tries to change the idea of the Sabbath from being oppressive, which denies food to the hungry, healing to the sick, and what was originally a reminder that we belong to God and not to our labor. In calling us back to the original intent of the Sabbath commandment, Jesus reminds us. Jesus reminds us that our lives are meant for God, to serve God, not for the false promises of sometimes being lifted up in life. Do you all remember January of 2016? Lottery fever was running rampant. The jackpot was estimated to be $1.5 billion 
it would be the largest jackpot of all time. The cash annuity, from a financial guy, the cash annuity was $984 million. I remember the talk. Probably it was like this around Lake City, too. If I could only win the lottery, I would... What incredible giving opportunities there were. A buddy and I spoke about setting up a college fund for the kids in our churches, setting up a professor chair at the seminary that we attended, or the colleges that we had attended, clearing out all our friends' debts, paying all their family needs, in other words, paying off their mortgages, buying our kids' houses, buying vacation homes in Maine and Captiva, then taking a long cruise, and we'd still have $980 million to go. So we decided we'd open up a nonprofit with the money to help those in need and what all oh, the things that were going to be done. Oh my goodness, it was a nice dream. I didn't win. And I don't think anybody here did either. Somebody close to here did. Somebody close did. The text this morning reminds us the journey of life goes through the cross, but that it, the resurrection awaits for us as well. Jesus did not go to the cross to tell us how bad we are, but to point us in a new life. We come now to this table, his table, to be reminded, to be put, putting Christ back into Christianity, to remember what he did for us, what he taught us, to love God, to love our neighbor as self, forgive 70 times 7, treat others the way we'd like to be treated, Whatever is, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, house the homeless, welcome the foreigner, don't judge, care for the sick, love one another as Christ loved us. My friends, come now to this table, his table, to be nourished, to be fed, to remember, to resolve our hunger and quench our thirst. For it is only this meal that does that. It is his meal. And he sets it now before each and every one of us and invites us to sup with him. Amen. Let us pray.